If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the Deputy Editor. And I'm Charlotte Hodgman, the Section Editor. This is our November 2010 podcast. Coming up this month, we have... It's no surprise that the Republican Party, when they, as it were, have the tide of history with them... That was Richard Carwardine on Abraham Lincoln's election triumph. Thousands of people took to the roads in panic, believing that there really was an alien invasion underway. And that was Karen Allen explaining how Yorkshire mischief made it to the United States. podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history title. 150 years ago this month, Americans went to the polls to decide a new president. Among the candidates was Abraham Lincoln, leader of a Republican Party that was formed in opposition to the extension of slavery in the country. Lincoln's resounding victory in the vote led to the breakaway of the southern states, and ultimately it led to the American Civil War. Professor Richard Carwardine is an expert on this period of American history. Recently, I caught up with him to find out how Lincoln was able to triumph and whether 1860 counts as the most important election ever held in the United States. Which were the parties who competed for the 1860 American presidential election? There are four parties, or in fact one really should say five parties, although I didn't in fact mention the fifth in my piece because it's a very small radical abolitionist party. But let's look at the main parties first. You have the historic Democratic Party, 
which splits at the party convention, first of all in April and then later in the summer of 1860 over the issue of protecting slavery in the territories. So you've really got two separate democratic forces in 1860, the National Party led by Stephen Douglas of Illinois, and the other led by John Breckinridge of Kentucky and supported by Democrats across the nation, but particularly in the South. Then you have a residue of old Whigs, and it's perhaps just helpful if I explain that up until the mid-1850s, from the mid-1830s, there had been a two-party competition in the United States between Whigs and Democrats. The Democrats and the Whigs appeal to different kinds of constituency, not in terms of social class so much as to attitudes towards government and attitudes towards the development of the nation. The Whig Party was very keen to use governmental power to develop the economic infrastructure of the United States and to modernize the economy. They were ready to use government in a very forceful and enterprising way. The Democratic Party was a party of small government, of localism that was fearful of centralized power and wanted to see government authority exercised very much through the locality and at most really through the state. So there is a different constitutional idea of the role of government and on the whole the Democrats are less attracted to this burgeoning national market economy that is emerging during the 1830s and 1840s. So the politics of the 1830s and 40s are very much fought on issues of economic development and of the scope of governmental power and to some extent on the expansion of the nation through manifest destiny through the use, if it comes to it, of the American forces to expand the boundaries of the nation. So that in 1860, coming back to 1860, you have a, a residue of that old Whig party that hasn't completely gone away. The Whig party has broken up into fragments in the mid-1850s, but some of those constitutionally conservative type, that federal government-oriented Whigs, still continue to present themselves before the public as in 1860 the Constitutional Union Party under Edward Everett and the presidential candidate, John Bell of Tennessee. And then fourthly in this quartet of big forces in the election, you have the Republican Party. Republican Party that has come on the scene in the mid-1850s. There's no single moment of its birth. A number of state organizations take the name Republican Party, but they're not quite the same as the party that eventually fights the campaign in 1860. But by 1860, these forces that have been thrown up really by opposition to the Kansas-Nebraska bill and then the Nebraska Act of 1854, an act which opened up the huge central area of the continental United States, opened it up to the prospect of slave settlement, of slave owner settlement. That reaction to the Kansas-Nebraska bill had thrown up anti-Nebraska coalitions, Republican coalitions, People's Party coalitions, as they variously called themselves, which by 1860 had fused into the Republican Party, standing for opposition to the spread of slavery into the territorial domain. In addition to those four forces, you have a residual abolitionist 
first political abolitionist movement, as the first abolitionist political party had run uh, in 1840 for the presidency with no expectation of success, but rather as a, a lobbying group, a conscience group, a conscience on the nation, prodding the nation's conscience in respect of slavery. Those abolitionists of 1840, a number of them had found their way into the Free Soil Party and then the Republican Party of the 1850s. But there were those who felt that the Republican Party was too timid in respect of slavery. The Republican Party was not opposed to slavery in the state where it existed, where it was opposed in a moral sense, but it wanted to leave the control of slavery in the states where it existed to the state authorities, believing that the Constitution, the American Constitution, did protect slavery within those state confines. The radical abolitionists and their candidate, uh, Gerrit Smith, in 1860, believed that the Republican Party was too timid a political force, but the number of votes that they secured was a modest handful compared to the capacity of the other four parties to win votes. For this election, how important an issue was slavery? I think the issue of slavery was the preeminent issue facing the country. To become so in large part because of the events of the 1840s and 1850s. It, of course, was the case that the vast majority of Americans, of white Americans, accepted that slavery was a protected institution, that it would continue to exist within the slave states of the South for as long as those individual states chose to maintain the institution, their domestic institution, their peculiar institutions, they often referred to it. So there was a general agreement about the constitutional status of slavery. But what brought about the controversy through the 1840s and 1850s was the huge expansion of the land mass of the continental United States as a result, first of all, of the acquisition through annexation of the Republic, the Independent Republic of Texas, by treaty in 1845, and then subsequently following the war with Mexico, a war, it has to be said, which was really instigated by a slaveholding president, James K. Polk, in 1846. Uh, that war, which drew to an end in 1848, brought within the confines of the United States the huge areas of California, New Mexico, Utah, New Mexico then being a very much bigger area than the, the current state. So this area to the southwest of the United States is brought within the confines of the, the nation. And the question is, what kind of system of economic and social system should be exported into and expanded into these new regions? Those in the North who accept that slavery is protected in the slave states do not concede that slavery should be allowed to expand into the new territories. Many of them point to what they see as the intentions of the founding fathers who in 1787, actually before the federal constitution, are making it very clear that uh, by the Northwest Ordinance, for instance, that slavery should not spread into the territorial domain of the United States.
On the other hand, by 1860, there are those Southerners who say the acquisitions from Mexico came about through the spilling of Southern blood and through the expenditure of the treasure of the whole nation. And therefore, the advantages of a new territory should be shared by everyone alike, by Northerners and Southerners, by slaveholders and non-slaveholders. The worry, of course, is for the non-slaveholding states is that if slaveholders are allowed to carry their slaves into the new territories, this will so infect and so influence the shape of the future that free labor will not actually survive. The worry is that slave labor will drive out free labor. So slavery is hugely important. It's not the only political issue. There are other issues besides slavery. But the big national issue of the 1850s is slavery. And if you look at the party platforms of 1856 and 1860, those two big presidential elections, you can see that slavery dominates the individual elements of those platforms. And the big political crises of the 1850, the Kansas-Nebraska Bill of 1854, and then the response to the Supreme Court ruling in 1857, the famous Dred Scott ruling of 1857, in which uh, Chief Justice Tawney and a majority of the court deem that African Americans, black Americans cannot be citizens, and this hugely important, that slave owners have the right to carry their slave property into every part of the American territorial domain. That ruling in the Dred Scott decision creates a huge political controversy, a huge reaction. And you can't look at national politics in this period without seeing slavery in one way or another finding its way to the centre of the debate. So Abraham Lincoln goes on to win the 1860 presidential election for the Republican Party. How was he able to do that? How were the party able to triumph? Lincoln won because he was a Republican, rather more than because he was Abraham Lincoln. I don't mean to diminish Lincoln's capabilities or indeed his attractiveness to the Republican Party. But it was as a party nominee that Lincoln won. Why was Lincoln nominated? That tells us something about the nature of the Republican Party, the character of the Republican Party. Lincoln was nominated because he was neither too conservative nor perceived as being too radical. He attracted the conservative elements within the Republican Party. So he was strict in his understanding of the rights of Southerners under the Constitution. He was a cautious lawyer. Indeed, as a lawyer, he was known indeed by abolitionists as that slave hound from Illinois, because on one occasion he had defended the rights of a slave owner in Illinois who was in pursuit of a runaway slave. So Lincoln is able to appeal to the conservative wing of the Republican Party. On the other hand, his speeches through the 1850s, not just in his debates with Douglas in 1858, important though those were, but over a period of five or six years, Lincoln had made it very clear that he saw the dividing line in the nation between those who saw slavery as right and those who saw slavery as wrong. And he was very clear that slavery was wrong. If slavery is not wrong, then nothing is wrong, he said, quoting a, a New England preacher. So he also has an attractiveness to the radical element of the Republican Party. But he doesn't come across to the public, the mainstream northern public, 
as a firebrand. There are Republicans who are seen in that light, and there are Republicans who are seen as being essentially barely anti-slavery at all. But Lincoln is seen as being in the middle of that spectrum of Republican opinion. But it's as a Republican that he wins the election, and the Republican Party is able to win that election because by 1860, the fragmentation of politics has continued to the point that by fragmentation of politics, I mean not simply the explosion and disruption and effective death of the Whig Party, but I also mean the fracture within the Democratic Party. What that represents is a movement of opinion within the North and within a North that is growing in terms of population in voting numbers relative to the South. What it represents is a growing division in opinion over the right response to slavery. And by 1860, there is this powerful sense in the free states that the government at Washington has come too much under the control of a minority of Southern slaveholders. It was the case that in the 1850s, the two Democratic presidents, Franklin Pierce elected in 1852, James Buchanan elected in 1856, these are both Northern Democrats, but they are seen to be under the control of Southern slave owners who take the important roles in the cabinet. And when it comes to the crunch, these Northern Democratic presidents go with the Southern slaveholders on the issue of the Nebraska Act and then subsequently over the issue of the settlement of Kansas and the support given by the Washington administration to local pro-slavery politicians in Kansas. So the Democratic Party is increasingly perceived in progressive reforming Northern circles as being a party that is controlled by the South, that cannot be relied upon in respect of, of slavery. And when Stephen Douglas breaks with the national administration, with the Democratic administration of James Buchanan in 1857-58 over the issue of the Constitution in Kansas Territory, should it be a pro-slave or a, an anti-slave constitution in Kansas Territory, when that breach occurs, it demonstrates the failure of the Democratic Party really to stand up for the rights of northern free laborers who are looking to the West to settle the West and to establish free farms. So the Democratic Party is, in a sense, a busted flush by 1860. And the Republican Party, essentially a, a northern party with very little representation in the slave states and with some representation in the far west, but it's essentially a, a midwestern and northeastern party. That's the part of the union where the population is growing, that where voting strength matters. And it's the Republican Party in 1860 which takes a majority of votes, not just a plurality, but a majority of votes in the really big states of the North, Ohio, Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania. And it may not have been inevitable, but looking rationally and carefully at what was happening between 1854 and 1860, it is no surprise that an anti-slavery party, a party committed to quarantining slavery in the states of the Lower South and at the Border South, and opening up the West for free farmers, for free labor, for free men, it's no surprise, it seems to me, that the Republican Party, when they, as it were, have the tide of history with them. A few months after Lincoln's elected, the Civil War begins. Is the Civil War inevitable after Lincoln has won that election? It 
it's very hard to see what other course of events could have eventuated once the states of the lower south have got themselves together in a collective act of secession. That withdrawal from the Union of one state after another through December 1860 into February of 1861, once that movement out of the Union takes place, it's very hard to see what else would have eventuated or could have eventuated about a conflict. Of course, there were schemes for reconciliation and for compromise. John Crittenden of Kentucky brings a scheme of compromise into Congress in December of 1860. It's a scheme that has a good deal of public support. It would have uh, drawn a line from Missouri to the far west, to the western coast, above which slavery would be forbidden, but below which it would be allowed to expand. But although there was popular support for that, you have a party that has won an election on a particular platform which is committed to the non-extension of slavery. And Lincoln and his party, more generally, not universally, but overwhelmingly, took the view that this was a legitimate victory under the Constitution and that the back down would be to back down in face of blackmail and terror, political terror. And they were not prepared to do that. So I think the course of events is entirely explicable and entirely logical once the southern states have chosen to withdraw. Now, you may ask the question, why did the southern states withdraw? Surely they would have seen that uh, this would lead to conflict. Well, of course, they didn't. They withdrew because they believed that the new government, when it came into being in March of 1861, would really be a sort of entering wedge, an anti-slavery entering wedge into the South. And that Lincoln might not be an abolitionist himself in the sense of a kind of an immediate abolitionist, but the impact of an anti-slavery representative in the White House, representing an anti-slavery party, representing people who were indeed abolitionists, the party that had been deemed to support John Brown's raid, a botched raid on Harper's Ferry in 1859, this party, the argument went, this party in government would inevitably mean that the South's rights within the Union and the rights to slavery would be very quickly eroded and a new anti-slavery party would be created, which would be a kind of fifth column working away to erode the institutions of the South. That's why the Southern radicals or Southern nationalists chose to secede in 1860-61, and they did so confident that the North's standing by the Union would be sheer bluster, that the South's control of cotton, of King Cotton, and the demand for cotton worldwide, and the fact that northern merchants were involved in that commercial activity would mean that when it came to it, the North would accept the withdrawal of these southern states without conflict, without violence. But it seems to me that war was a very, very likely consequence of Lincoln's election in November of 1860, once the South had chosen to take the steps that it did in reaction to that election. Do you think we can see the 1860 election as the most momentous in American history? Well, you pays your money and you takes your choice, but I think it is the most momentous in the sense that I see the crux of American history as being its civil war, and the civil war as being 
a war about the nature of the Republican experiment and indeed the permanence of the Republican experiment. What 1860 did was to draw a line against the spread of slavery to say thus far and no more. The founders of the nation, I talk about the founders, I'm not implying by that that the constitution of 1787 was necessarily the start of the nation, but it is the founding document of the nation. The compromise of 1787 was a compromise over slavery. That was a compromise that could not last indefinitely in the light of economic and social change in the 19th century. 1860 was that moment of decision when a party committed to the ultimate ending of slavery is democratically voted into power. The reaction to the 1860 election is such that the nation has to embark on a war that claims well over 600,000 lives. And by the time of Appomattox in 1865, it is clear, A, that the Union is indeed permanent, and B, that the authority of the federal government, as understood by the Republican Party, as defined by the Republican Party in 1860, that reading of the Constitution is now the core reading, the only possible reading of the Constitution. In other words, that the federal government really is a permanent piece of the constitutional landscape uh, and that states do not have the right to withdraw voluntarily from this union of states. So yes, I see the 1860 election as the most significant election in American history for that reason. But the crux of American history is its civil war, which sees the ending of slavery and which sees the redefinition of American citizenship. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. That was Professor Richard Carwardine of the University of Oxford. You can read more about this election in a feature that he's written for our November issue.
Halloween today is often seen as an American phenomenon, yet its roots lie in the much older tradition of Mischief Night, a northern custom begun in Yorkshire during the late 18th century, and one that was originally celebrated on the last day of April. I spoke to Karen Allen about Mischief Night traditions and found out how a practical joke by Orson Welles in the 1930s led thousands of Americans to believe the Martians had landed. So Karen, what exactly was Mischief Night and where did it originate? Okay, um, essentially Mischief Night is a calendar custom and it's pretty much recognised as being on the 4th of November, um, which is the eve of Bonfire Night. Um, It's a tradition or a custom that's not sanctioned by either the church or the state and it's predominantly carried out by children. And it's a tradition that was considered by the children to be uh, not bound by the law, i.e. they were allowed on that particular night to, to get away with things that they wouldn't have otherwise been allowed to get away with any other night. It tends to be found in Yorkshire and the north of England generally. And it takes the form of hiding garden gates, uh, putting treacle on door handles, tying door handles across the street from you know, from one side of the street to the other, and then knocking on the doors so that when you when the person comes and opens the door, they pull or shut the door opposite that kind of thing. But the origins have shifted quite a lot, and originally uh, we've got evidence of it being done on May Eve rather than on the 4th of November. And they were the same kinds of practices, essentially. On May Eve, quite late at night, boys and girls would go out and collect foliage in for for May. And whilst they were out quite late at night, they would often leave things on people's doorsteps, um, pieces of foliage. And the pieces of foliage that they left quite often corresponded to whether or not they liked the individual inside. And that was sort of the basis of a lot more kind of sinister pranks that then followed it. And we've got quite a few lovely accounts from the early um, 19th century, particularly in Wakefield and Barnsley and Dewsbury area, where they would um, wrap on windows with needles. They would tie a thread around a cotton reel and suspend a a needle and tie it to the top of the um, wooden uh, window frame. And then the wind would tap the needle Um, against the window but because it was so fine of course in the dark the people inside wouldn't be able to see it but they would just be this sort of gentle tapping and it would be designed to kind of unnerve the inhabitants and other examples that we've got are where they've put soot along uh, the front door and then sort of blown the soot into the house or or put coal dust along and, and lit it so that it would send um smoke into the house and smoke out the inhabitants why do you think it was prevalent in Yorkshire? Is there evidence of similar antics elsewhere in the country? Um, we have more evidence for Yorkshire than we do, um, and across the north of England, than we do for, for other areas. We have instances as far as um, Liverpool on one side and Scarborough on the other, um, and as far south as, as Oxford and Devon. But the concentration seems to really be in the north of England. It's unclear as to why it's particularly associated with the north of England and not any other part of the country Uh, and we can only really speculate as to why that's the case Uh, but there are things about the north of England that are distinctive from other areas for example we've got a much stronger kind of Viking influence than other areas of the country particularly in terms of names and and towns and street names and things and and dialect so there is a kind of longevity of traditions that kind of exist in Yorkshire that perhaps don't exist in other areas of the country.
There's a book that's out by Colin Brown that's looking into the Up LER Festival um, in the Shetland Isles. And he makes reference to a New Year mischief, not a November the 4th mischief, but a New Year's Eve mischief. And this is the preserve, not of children, but of full-grown men. Um, and it's, it's seen as a man's activity. And what they used to do is they used to ro- roll tar barrels down the street. They would light them. You could roll your tar barrels down the main street. And this, this, is, this is fantastic because Christmas was the time of, of boys' pranks or of children's pranks. But New Year's Eve was the preserve of men and men's chance to, to run riot. I mean, from what you've said, um, tricks were mainly performed on property. Are there any examples of tricks being performed on, on people? Um, yeah, we do. I mean, particularly in a, in a contemporary context, there are the sort of calling out people's names and then hiding kind of low-level um, things. The contemporary accounts might be throwing flour at people or eggs at people, that kind of thing. So the emphasis has shifted almost from a boundary related phenomena. If you think of a kind of attacking people's front doors or windows, they're almost a sort of boundary between the inside world of the home and the outside world of the street. Whereas the, there seems to be a shift towards actually crossing that boundary and attacking the individual. So there are instances, but in the main, it's, it does seem to be kind of constraint to, to doors and windows and that kind of thing. And was it viewed as just harmless fun by the law? It shifts because... Early accounts, you've got magistrates and police officers, uh, particularly in 1950s, effectively telling people to take off their garden gates and hide them because it will save them the hassle of going to look for them in the morning. So there's almost a kind of acceptance that that will take place. In recent years, you have a, a large sort of criminalization of, of children's activity. I mean, there's, in the last sort of 20 or 30 years, you've got quite a few acts of parliament that have specifically being designed to, to kind of clamp down on what's perceived to be um, unruly behaviour by children and, you know, sort of teenagers in general. So although it technically, yes, they are outside of the realms of the law, but there was an awful lot more leniency than there is today. And you mentioned in your feature about the migration of Yorkshire men and women to North America. Did the custom travel too? And is that still something that's seen there today? Well, we had people travelling from Yorkshire from as early as the 17th century onwards, but there was a, a much greater exodus in the, in the 19th century due to crop failures and unemployment and the sort of mechanisation that took away people's livelihoods, particularly if they were craftspeople. So more people went to America and Canada and sometimes whole communities kind of went up and, and shifted across. And so if you've got whole communities moving from one location wholesale to another location wholesale, they tend to kind of keep a certain rigidity of their customs that they will take with them. Now, that's quite easily seen when you're talking about Irish communities in America and Scottish communities in America. But what isn't so talked about is, is the fact that lots of Yorkshire communities went over to America and they pretty much remained as Yorkshire communities in much the same way as the Irish and the Scots. And so if they've taken those those ideas with them, then there's a very, very strong chance that Mischief Night would have been taken along with everything else. So although, again, we, we are in kind of burgeoning territory in terms of our understanding of this, it's not outside of the realms of possibility to assume that that's what happened. And then 
you've got this um, very Yorkshire tradition meeting up with, of course, the Scottish tradition of, of Halloween, um, which they, they made an awful lot of when they went to America, made it a kind of um, national event. And so there's, we're, we're not sure how it happened, but by sort of 1872, you've got children in America and Canada pretty much replicating the kinds of mischief that Yorkshire children have been doing for a lot longer. So you've, you've got this parallel. How, how the date shifts from one to the other, we're not quite sure. But there is clear evidence that the, the practices associated with Mischief Night by the 60s and 70s are duplicating the kinds of activities that have, that have been happening in Yorkshire. So how did Halloween then become associated with witches and evil and things like that, going from a kind of prank night to something that was, you know, a bit more sinister? I think Halloween is essentially, as it's portrayed by the church, a Christian phenomena. Um, the notion of the devil, for example, doesn't appear in, pre- in pre-Christian traditions. The pagan calendar does have Samhain, but really that just means the end of the summer. There's virtually no evidence to suppose that the, that the pagan calendar had any festival that was akin to devil, devil worshipping at that time because, as I say, it didn't even appear in their ideology. Certainly there was an exploration of the relationship between the world of the living and the dead, sort of darkness and light, times of transition, are far older than, than the Christian church. But the fascination and demonization of witches uh, is essentially a Christian phenomenon, spearheaded pretty much by the American Christian fundamentalist movement. You've mentioned the changes to the date of Mischief Night, so it went from May Eve and then went sort of later in the year. Why, why was that? Essentially, what happened was Mischief Night was a May Eve tradition, but when you've got um, urbanisation and the Industrial Revolution and you've got migrations going from the country into the city, what happens is that all of the associations with the rural calendar no longer fit in with an urban existence. And so a lot of the May Day customs kind of die out because they don't have any relevance to, to living in a big urban environment. But the idea that children can go out and cause mischief lingers on. So they're able to shift that date to another date. And in Areas like Leeds and um, Dewsbury and, and those kind of areas, what happens is that they, they already have a kind of association with mischief on the eve of bonfire night. And that's quite easy to see why, because, of course, it's a lot darker a lot earlier. Children are out gathering wood for the fire, so they're out and about in the streets anyway. And so there's a sort of natural pull from one date to another. There's um, a tradition called chumping, where children will go out and try and steal each other's uh, wood from, you know, the next door's bonfire. And, and so there's a sort of pride in, in collecting all your wood and your, your stash of wood. But, you, but you're trying to stop, you know, the, the gang up the road nicking your wood or setting light to your bonfire before bonfire night. So there's, there's a lot of sort of tension in the air. And so it kind of lend, lent itself to kind of adopting this kind of mischievous element as well. And so we see this kind of shift from May Eve to, to the 4th of November. Um, but when you've got the influence of America coming back in, of course, yes, you've got the mischief night that went out with the settlers that went out to America and that kind of did its own thing in America and sort of got um, incorporated into the American Halloween. When that comes back over, of course, it comes back over as trick-or-treating. But, the, but it's interesting because the element of trick-or-treating 
has that trick, the, the trick element, if you like, could be seen as the mischievous element that went out and it's coming back as trick or treat. But it's now competing with the far older original tradition of of mischief night. And finally, you mentioned in your feature a lovely story um, about the prank played by Orson Welles in 1938 on the radio. Can you just maybe tell us a little bit about that? Well, Orson Welles uh, was using um, H.G. Welles' original play, The War of the Worlds, and he adapted it for a radio drama broadcast um, in America, uh, and he sort of adapted it to uh, make it seem like aliens were invading America. And it caused widespread panic. I mean, thousands of people took to the roads in panic, believing that there really was an alien invasion underway. Um, when they got to the studios eventually to try and sort of find out what was happening and he was taken away for questioning, what, what happened is he then had to do a radio, a radio broadcast effectively apologising for all of the mayhem that he had caused as a result of this drama. And it's quite interesting that when he's in the middle of his apology, he actually effectively says, um, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal your garden gates by tomorrow night. So we did the next best thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears. He's effectively saying, we couldn't go around creating mischief on every single street in America. So we did the next best thing. We, we played the biggest practical joke we could on you because it's mischief night. Now he's doing this on Halloween, but the fact that he's referencing um, a knock and run type thing, these are mischief night traditions. So although he's relating it to Halloween, it's clear that the customs associated with it in America at that time incorporated some very specific traditions that originated in Yorkshire, originated in the original mischief night. That was Karen Allen on how a mischievous Yorkshire custom became part of America's Halloween celebrations. You can read Karen's feature, co-written by her husband Chris, in the current issue of BBC History magazine. BBC History magazine is published every four weeks in the UK and costs £3.80. Look out for it in your local newsagent or supermarket or take advantage of one of our great subscription deals, whether you're in the UK or overseas. Details are in the magazine and on our website at bbchistorymagazine.com. Now, before we go, how would you like your family to star on BBC television? The producers of a forthcoming social history series called Making Britain Count are looking for a British family to discuss their experiences in family life, education, work and other aspects of their lives from different decades of the past hundred years. Ideally, they'd like to interview three or four generations of the same family, the oldest of whom will have been born before 1940. If you're interested or would like to know more, please email Nick AD, and AD is A-D-E-Y, at 2020, the words, not the numbers, dot TV. So that's Nick AD at 2020.tv, or you can call him on 020 7424 7729. That's it for our November 2010 podcast, but do remember to tune in next month when we'll be discussing Edwardian terror, war on the railways, and the prayer book revolt. <laughs>